Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 189 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on this fine Tuesday. Uh, as you listen to this, it'll probably be Wednesday, but uh, here we are anyway. I'll be joined shortly by Jeff Siegel of the Step Back and also Peachtree Hoops. But before we get to Jeff, I want to hit you guys up with a little bit of the numbers going into Wednesday's Game 5 in Washington. I mentioned, I believe, on yesterday's podcast that the Hawks are now 30% according to 538 to win the series outright. Um, as far as Game 5 is concerned, uh, that that side actually has uh, Washington as a 72% favorite in Game 5, considering home court and all saying Not a huge surprise there. Las Vegas has made also the Wizards about a 5.5 or 6-point favorite at this point in time, which is, again makes makes some sense given the way that Games 1 and 2 went and the fact that Washington has been the better team all season long. So wanted to at least get that out there. And uh, you know, I, I don't have a huge lean one way or the other with regard to um, who wins this game I do think that Washington should be considered a comfortable favorite honestly just given the way that things have gone and the fact that they are a pretty good home team this season but uh you know the Hawks if they play the way they did especially if they shoot the way they, that they did at home from beyond the three-point arc that'd be a huge uh sort of levelizer in this game and we'll see if that uh, takes place in game five but I uh, want to get that out of the way and uh, with all of that I appreciate everybody listening to the podcast and uh, here is Jeff Siegel. Jeff thank you again for joining the show my friend what's going on? Not much. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Uh, it's Tuesday. Of course, Game 5 is coming on Wednesday. An early uh, 6 o'clock tip, which would be uh, interesting uh, in terms of setting in the nation's capital. But before we get there, we should talk a little bit about Game 4. Obviously, uh, I was there and recorded a podcast yesterday, but uh, interested, interested to see your thoughts. Uh, first thing I wanted to ask you actually was about Dwight Howard. Uh, he was one of the headliners, of course, in this game, and I thought uh, I thought Dwight played very well, um, especially offensively. He had some uh, good activity in this game. What did you, what did you see from Dwight overall in this game? I thought he was he was fine. Um, I thought the the energy was there, like you were talking about, and the uh, sort of his his offensive uh, energy was was high, which was good. The the defensive stuff is is good when people come at him in the paint because he can just explode upwards and it's all and you know he can still get up and block some shots but he's you know, getting him in space is obviously a problem for him. Yeah, I, I would agree. I was listening to uh, Nate Duncan and Daniel Larue, um, their podcast on Tuesday morning, and they referenced the lack of mobility that I think is pretty evident, honestly. But uh, it's kind of. Uh, I don't know. You, you have to be looking for it to notice it, I suppose. But with Dwight, I think it's pretty clear that uh, if you didn't know that already, he's certainly a more limited athlete than he used to be. And that can kind of manifest itself in pick and roll defense. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten to listen to the uh, the latest dunked on, but that's the same sort of thing that I was looking at is where Bradley Beal come around those picks and, and Howard's just not. He's just nailed to the paint. And it's because he 
if he gets out of the paint, it's he's not going to be able to get back in there quickly enough to uh, to deter any shots at the rim. Yeah, I mean, some of that is scheme-based. Obviously, the Hawks are doing that on purpose with Dwight and having him drop, but there is a difference between actually dropping and being able to uh, at least take, take another step out or really sort of deter guys because there, there's wide-open mid-range jump shots that you're allowing, like the ones that they're giving up to Wall and Beal in this series, and then there's ones that are you know partially contested. I think the Hawks want Washington shooting mid-range jumpers, but um, how you know the quality of those is kind of what uh, gets to me, especially when you're, when you're talking about partnering. Uh, and this is something that Nate and Danny said as well, but partnering Dwight and Tim Hardaway Jr and pick and roll coverage not the first time I've said that in this series and there were there were there were definitely worse moments I think uh game two is the worst example of this but uh you know something to, something to monitor in game four I talked about you know Dwight playing very well I thought he did play well but there were still things that um kind of remind you that he's not the player that he used to be yeah I mean we're talking these are super nitpicky points about about Dwight the overall the overall impact of of Dwight Howard is is very positive in this series but we're just talking about the sort of nitpicky, like Bradley Beal comes around the screen and he, uh, you know, and it just, he's able to pull up for that three because Dwight's nailed to the paint and Hardaway can't really get around those screens like Kent Bazemore can. Yep, that's a partnership that will be uh, something to keep an eye on. And I think you saw uh, Bradley, what, what Bradley Beal is capable of a little bit in game four after a couple of uh, rough games before that. But uh, speaking of Tim Hardaway Jr., actually, actually produced some backlash uh, during the game on Monday um, when I said that, uh, I, that that this series has been a reminder to me that Tim Hardaway Jr. is not a starting wing in this league. Uh, that wasn't necessarily a referendum on his play um, only in the series for me. I think people took it that way as if I was trying to make a reaction based on you know four games of sample. But but that's something that I, I've obviously felt before. It's just sort of been a reminder um, to me. But before I say anything else about how I feel about it, I wanted to ask you if you think that uh, I'm crazy or if you think that I'm just being negative or if there's something to that. I think you've got you've got a point there. I think he's right on the cusp of being a, a solid starter. He's just, you know, he's probably one of those guys that you're willing to pay, you know, $10, $12 million and, and have him come off the bench as a sixth man. But if he's, if he's going against a high-quality wing like Bradley Beal, you see – where his uh, his deficiencies are. So, you know, if you have him coming off the bench and all of a sudden he's guarding Boyan Bogdanovich, for example, like now all of a sudden it's he's able to do some he's he's able to be out there and you're not worried about him as much. Yeah, and I think I wasn't trying to be overly negative, and obviously, you know, Tim is functioning as a starter right now for the Hawks, and that I, I, I'm not really arguing with that. It wasn't a situation where I'm talking about his role on the Hawks this year necessarily. It's more of in a vacuum thing where I think his defense um, is – passable enough now where he's at least playable but in the same breath you have to be a very very good offensive player to overcome that kind of defensive limitation to be a real uh, legitimate sort of build around you kind of guy in the rotation as a starting as a starting caliber player and I think you know he's 25 years old he's still relatively young but I can't imagine he's going to get much better offensively Um, there were some strides this year of course he's been better off the dribble than I thought he would have been but um, for me it's that he's not good enough in any one area as an offensive player I think the whole the whole package is fairly encouraging offensively but with the way that he's not an elite shooter and doesn't really create for others very well and you throw in the defense I think that that total package is more suited to like a sixth seventh man which is fine by the way that's that's better than I've ever thought he'd be to be honest and I think that's still a guy who's worth you know eight and eight probably an eight figure a year contract on this market whether I would be the one to give him that is another question but I think he you know, it wouldn't be insane to give Tim Hardaway Jr. 10 million dollars a year and it would have been a year ago so he's come a long way I just think ideally on, on a playoff not, I wouldn't I shouldn't even say playoff on an upper tier playoff team I don't think you want him as a starting player yeah I I agree with you I think he'll he'll command that you know 10 12 million dollars this summer and I would be I would hesitate before giving that to him but he's going to get it from somebody 
Yeah, I'm the same way. And the fact that he's restricted makes that a very interesting conversation because uh, on one hand, it's very easy for the Hawks. They can just match any offer uh, that he is given, and that, may, that takes the pressure off a little bit. Um, and also, that's been known to suppress some offers, uh, at least in the recent past in the restricted market. You've seen some guys uh, who, not, who did not get their, uh, their full value necessarily. Um, but also, I think Hardaway's agent probably knows this, that the Hawks are almost o- over a barrel to some extent because I think, uh, you know, given the comments recently on Tony Ressler, I was going to ask you about that in a second, um, I think it's pretty clear that they want to be good right now, and that probably means signing Paul Millsap. And if you do that, they don't really have a ton of flexibility. So maybe that probably you know ups the ante in terms of the Hawks wanting to sign Tim, if only just to not lose the asset for nothing. So something to keep an eye on. I wouldn't uh, pay through the nose for Hardaway Jr., but it's kind of a scary situation. I think he's you know people were throwing around some monster numbers when I asked about this yesterday on Twitter as to what he could get. Um, this, these are Hawks fans who might not be super duper plugged in, but people like assuming he's he's going to get baseball money. He's not going to get that. I don't think. But um, if he does, I would certainly pass on that in a hurry. But I don't know. It's it's a situation where the Hawks almost have their hands behind their back to a certain extent there if they want to keep yeah. him uh, and not, not lose that asset. One thing to just keep an eye on is if Paul Millsap does come back and, and you see it's a little bit more like a, a Portland Trailblazers situation last summer where you find a team like the Nets or the 76ers come in and just give Hardaway Jr. a massive offer with the knowledge that, of course, that those teams would have that kind of cap space and could just eat the uh, eat a large contract for a guy who maybe doesn't deserve it. But then the Hawks may, in this sort of new edict from wrestler, have to match that and then, you know, just a little gamesmanship like we saw last summer with the Allen Crabb contracts. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to throw a lot of different wrinkles and in, wrinkles into the mix, and uh, we'll see what happens there. I wanted to ask you though about wrestlers, sort of big picture. Uh, I'm sure you're, I'm I'm assuming you've gotten to read those uh, interviews at this point in time and see what kind of takeaway you had from that because uh, it's a little bit scary for me. But there's there's some positives to having an owner that wants to win, but also some negatives to a guy who might be over meddling, etc. So I was wondering what your sort of big picture takeaway was there. Yeah, I mean, the big picture takeaways, like he's got to come out, especially during the playoff series when he has this sort of interview on the books and say something like, oh, well, we're always going to try to compete. And, you know, I, I think it's the situation made it harder for him to say like, oh, well, we're going to sort of maybe take a back seat after the season while they're in the middle of a playoff series where their best player is playing pretty well. Um, you know, so it's hard, you know, that. The optics of that would be a little weird if he were to come out and be like, well, we're probably not going to recite Paul this summer, even though he's playing super well and, and he's a big part of this team right now. So I, under, I, understand, I understand where he's coming from saying stuff like that, but it is a little, it's a little concerning about sort of how, how, how he's heavily involved on the decision-making side where you know, maybe he shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough to tell once you know specific circumstances moving forward, just how involved he'll be. He made sure to say that he was the final say, but uh, it's sort of up for interpretation because uh, in the end, the owner is always the final say, I suppose. But it's more of a whether it's a rubber stamp thing or whether he's actually you know making full on basketball decisions. But the timing thing, I'm glad you brought that up, is that. I think I thought the, I thought giving the interview at that time was even curious in itself, knowing that it, um, what you said that you kind of have to say some things like that. Um, so I, I was just curious as to why he decided to do it right then to even give the interview because wrestlers sort of famously not been super duper available to the media. Um, so this is kind of his his first you know not first but um, at least the first in a long time in terms of a big interview like this and have it land in the middle of a playoff series was uh, was curious on a number of levels and we'll see how uh, I mean I, I think we'll know a lot more and when we get into late June. Or 
early July as, uh, as things actually start happening, and we'll see what the direction this team takes. But um, for someone like me who was uh, not a huge fan of just bringing the band back and doing all that stuff, it's a little bit disconcerting. But my, my, I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about the fact that you already have a, a coach as the final GM um, guy, which I don't love that setup. And, and then and you throw in the fact that your owner is now uh, trying to come over the top of that. And it's, it seems like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen right now. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit too many. And then on the actual like basketball front office side, it seems like there's almost too few. Like we only hear about Bud and Wes Wilcox publicly, but they, I mean, I'm sure they have a full staff of scouts and stuff that we just don't really hear about. But it seems like there's, you know, Wrestler and Budenholzer and Wilcox are all sort of working together. But if Wrestler's the final say on everything, then, you know, that just, it gets a little dicey when you start integrating the business side of things with the, with the basketball side, like we saw you know, with, with Dwight and with Kent Bazemore coming back this year, you know, contracts that maybe, you know, if in a purely basketball sense, you wouldn't have signed. But, you know, there's a, there is a business side of this. For sure. And it's going to be impacting things moving forward. It's always it's always been there. So it would be uh, it'd be ill advised to talk about that like it was like it was a new problem, but uh, something to think about that probably people like myself uh, are guilty of ignoring sometimes to the detriment of the overall picture. Um, but on a more positive note, uh, Torian Prince is starting to get a ton of national attention this week. A lot of podcast talk, some writing stuff about Torian. I know you and I have been watching Torian closely throughout the season, so we're not surprised um, necessarily by the way he's played. I think he's probably played better than I thought he would in this playoff series. But uh, I, I know we talked a lot about him. Is there anything that's popped to you in this series so far that's made you even more encouraged than you were before? Uh, I'm over the moon with, with Torian Prince. There's no – you can't – you couldn't bring me down right now about him. He's the best part of this team going <laughs> forward. I just, I love him. And he's, he's going to be, I mean, he's not going to be Kawhi Leonard, but it's there. Like it's not, you know, the, the little, some little things that he's showing in this series. I mean, he took like two dribbles to his right and made a fadeaway jumper along the baseline. That was like straight out of the, the Kawhi Leonard that we saw in game four on Saturday. And it was just, there's a lot to be excited about with with Torian Prince. He's the he is the biggest bright spot for me on this team, and he's just there's some serious potential there. And even though his age, you know, makes it makes makes it hard for him to really develop into a super duper star for a long for a long time, he he might hit that at least for for a little bit. I mean, of course, this is rampant speculation, but he could. Uh, he's I'm 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 super excited about him. Yeah, I am too. I mean, people. I don't know. If you want to be, if you want to be negative about it, you could talk about how he's already 23. Like you said, the age stuff. That's that does it does seem very young, but uh, in terms of uh, being a rookie, that's pretty old in today's NBA. He's not as old as Malcolm Brogdon, but uh, he's up there in terms of uh, rookie stuff and age. But uh, what we've seen has been very encouraging. I always liked Torian, but even I think uh, he's been ahead of schedule for me, especially offensively. I think this season he's been more polished. Than I thought there were some finishes, uh, especially in games three and four, when he's been super efficient offensively. Whereas uh, he's had some uh, some grown man uh, finish around the rim and be able to uh, sort of have some craft around the rim, which is encouraging to me. I'm not, I'm not sure he's going to be a knockdown shooter, but he's already uh, you know become sort of a passable one that I think is going to improve. If you've seen anything with the, with the Hawks guys in the recent passive player development, uh, almost everybody improves their jump shot at some point in time to at least become a passable one. Um, even Kent Bazemore, who's taking a step back this year, obviously last year had a big breakout. Tamari Wood Jr. has become a better shooter. Um, and, of course, before that, guys like Damari Carroll who took huge strides. So uh, we'll see how that works with Hawks University. And uh, also DeAndre Bembry is another guy 
was going to have to learn how to shoot, how to shoot a little bit better. But Prince is more, Prince is further ahead. I'm still a little bit skeptical about his ultimate ceiling. I think you're a little higher on that than I am, which is which is fine. I have no I have no problem with. It. I'm also very excited about Tori. I think he's definitely your best asset moving forward. I think people would push back on that a little bit, and uh, if you're a Dennis Schroeder fan, but um, I think those two guys. Um, you know, the one thing about Schroeder is that he is also very young uh, and, and has more experience. But I think Prince's ceiling is higher. So we'll see how that goes there. But if you're arguing about which ceiling is higher, it's probably a good place to be in because that, that means you like both 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 assets, and that's that's encouraging. Yeah, I think I mean I'm getting very ahead of myself with the Torian Prince Kawhi Leonard stuff, but it is <laughs> yes. it's just it's there. Like there is there you, you there's a path to where Prince becomes a relatively poor man's Kawhi Leonard. You know, it's just it's it, there's a there's a path there, and that's what I'm looking at. I'm not saying like oh he'll be an MVP candidate by year four. He'll be. His, it's going to take a little while, but he's he's showing more than I would have expected, especially in a playoff series where everything is more intense and he's going against starters, obviously as a starter himself. And it's just he's he's uh, he's bringing his level up the same way that everybody else is in a, in a way that's encouraging for sure. Yeah, I'm a big fan, and I knew I knew you weren't saying that, but I'm glad, I'm glad you corrected it because I think people will probably freak out when they hear about Kawhi. But I know you're not saying that he'll actually be that. It's just that sort of that model of a, a guy who was a little bit raw coming out of college that sort of modeled himself and look. He looks he does look like Kawhi a little bit on the court. Obviously, I, I don't, I'd be blown away if he even achieved you know 90% of what Kawhi is now. But uh, if he gets to 75%, that's a heck of a player. So uh, no question about that. And that's good to see Torian coming into his own because look, him playing 30 minutes a game as a rookie in the playoffs was not something that I was prepared for, um, but the fact that he's looked as good as he is is uh, super encouraging. Um, before I let you get out of here, I did want to ask you about one more guy. Uh, I thought Kent Bazemore was really good uh, in Game 4 especially and talked about that, um, especially the playmaking with his uh, his passes to Dwight. He finished with 7 assists, had 16 points. I thought Kent was very good defensively for the most part as well, uh, probably his best game in the series. Uh, what, what have you seen from Kent, and does that present any hope for you for the future that he's actually been playing well recently? Yeah, I think his, his defense in Game 4 was particularly uh particularly good for me i guess as a as sort of a opposite of tim hardaway jr when they would when hardaway jr got pulled and baysmore came in to guard bradley beal sort of down the stretch of the end of game four it was really just a very stark comparison between the two and you could see how much how much more the uh how much better the hawks defense is when baysmore is on the floor and able to guard these uh these the the, the uh, primary ball handlers. So it was uh, it's very encouraging to see Bazemore playing well, and of course anything he can give you offensively on top of the defense is is a positive. Yeah, I mean I think his, his reputation as a stopper is uh, is overrated, and I think I don't know. I mean it's a situation where he's uh, all, all you all, all you kind of need to even be is, is an above average defender, and I think he got this reputation last year at least with the contract that it was like oh Kent Bazemore defensive stopper, and he's he's not really that, but he is a unique guy. He's He's very active. He's very quick. He can guard point guards. You've seen what he can do off screens, and um, there's some mental stuff that doesn't always go super well defensively for Kent. But when he's when he's locked in and playing well on that end, he's, he's encouraging. And offensively, uh, I mean, the workload stuff is interesting. I think offensively, like he, you don't want the ball in his hands a ton, but he does have enough playmaking ability to where it, it can be a nice uh, throw in. I think we saw that in this game. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a perfect scenario with him and Dwight. And I think they had three alley oop connections in this game. So that's not always going to happen, but Kent's at least capable uh that we've and we, we've seen some of that with his with his passing and i don't think you want him to be a primary scoring option but he's at least you know he, he can catch for the ball on the court and uh and go to the room if he needs to or catch and shoot and he's at least a very a very enough player i think the hate's gone far uh gone way 
too far, I would say, with Kent. Uh, there's a scenario in which uh, he at least comes close to living up to that contract. I can't imagine he's probably going to be as good as people want him to be, necessarily. Um, but the fact that he uh, is a playable rotation player sort of limits the limits the downside of the deal. I think uh, you know earning that money, quote-unquote, is uh, almost out the window at this point, and all you want him to be is a guy that you can use moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And I think he's he's got a real good sort of chemistry with Dwight in a way that even Dennis doesn't quite have yet. And he's, you know, they've been good all year sort of in that sort of pseudo pick and roll or even in a spot up situation where then Baysmore drives and can find him in, a, in the dunker spot. So it's they've had some good chemistry there and that's going to be good for, for Baysmore and Howard going forward. But it's like I like you said, I think it's going to be very difficult for Baysmore to live up to that that massive contract at this point. Yep, uh, it's kind of unfortunate because I think it just changes the way people talk about you, but uh, and it probably shouldn't, but that's just the nature of knowing what these guys make and sort of all the ramifications that come with that, which is an, an entirely different conversation. Um, lastly, uh, what, this is sort of a weird question. I know it's sort of a loaded one, but uh, what do you think the Hawks' best lineup is right now, one through five? I, I know it varies based on the situation, but for, let's just assume that Washington's playing their starting five and all things are equal. Do you think it's, do you think it's Atlanta's starting five or is it someone else? I think it's something else. I would put, let's. I, I would go with Schroeder, Bazemore, Prince, uh, Millsap, and Howard. That would be my starting. That would be my best five, assuming that Washington is playing Gortat at at the five. Um, other, if, if uh, of course, if Washington goes small, then Atlanta might also like to go small. But uh, if if it's going to be Washington starters against Atlanta, I would go with with Bazemore and Prince on the wings. Yeah, that's that's certainly the best defensive alignment, provided that Bud is not going to play Tabo, which I think is out the window at this point, based on how he's played. Yeah, I'm just assuming that Tabo Sevalosha might as well not even be on the team anymore. Yeah, I I I still don't get that, but uh, if we just assume that, I think we probably have to at this point. That uh, I kind of agree with you. I think people will be. surprised that we're not including Hardaway there and I think it's situation based as well if the Hawks are trailing obviously you want to be able to score and you need Hardaway on the court to do that if your best offensive lineups probably all include Hardaway but um, if all things are equal like in a tie game or if you're especially if you're leading and want to go defense first uh, I, I don't have any beef with that even though I, I would say honestly that I think Tim's probably been better than Kent for the full season but the way that Kent's playing recently and the, just, just his uh, his defensive ability to, especially in this series against the backcourt of, of Wall and Beal it really is tough to play Tim sometimes especially because it's been kind of curious to me that Bud has not not at least tried Torian on Bradley Beal in that starting lineup and just kind of maybe see if you can hide Tim on uh, Otto Porter but I guess um, Prince has had some success uh, against Porter and I guess Hardaway has not gotten killed badly enough for Bud to go away from that but uh, maybe maybe that's a wrinkle that we'll see down the line. Yeah I think Prince has played Porter really well. Porter hasn't played nearly as well as he usually does during the regular season and so he's sort of one of those guys that didn't that hasn't stepped up his value in, in the playoffs as much as we've talked about him or just people have talked about him getting a, getting a massive contract this summer. I think Porter sort of lowered his value slightly in that, in that regard because Prince, is, Prince has done a really good job there. So I, I see why Bud might want to leave Prince there. But if, we're, you know, if the Hawks are coming down the stretch and you know, it's a tie game, I would rather have Baysmore out there just because defense is going to win out in those, in those tight games, especially when you can just go to Millsap against – Markeith Morris, who's he's just killed in these last three games. You know, if, if that's what your offense is, go to Millsap, go to a, you know, a Schroeder Millsap pick and roll, then it's better to have, uh, have Baysmore and Prince out there for defense. 
Yep, I, I have no argument there, although I think it is pretty close between Kent and Tim, but I would go with Kent as well. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, Millsap, Carter, got Morris. It's been a lot of fun, honestly, uh, in, in some of these post games uh, being on the scene. I was uh, actually standing next to Candace Buckner when she asked Paul uh, the now infamous question about the crybaby, uh, and I was literally within, uh, I could I could have re- reached my hand and put my arm on uh, Candace's shoulder. So that was, it was pretty fun to see that stuff up close, and Paul has been uh, fantastic in the series. It's almost not even worth talking about. I, I try, I, I'm sort of out of things to say about Paul Millsap because he's been so good, but uh, worth noting, it's been a lot of fun to see him kind of carve up Markeith. Um Jeff, I have to get a prediction from you um, at this point in time. Uh, I guess give me what you thought uh, coming into the series, how that might have changed, and what you think might happen moving forward here because uh, I think Washington's the favorite, but uh, you know it's 2-2, all things are equal, and uh, what, what's going to happen now? I think before the series, I had Washington in five, so that's obviously out the door. Um, but I, I mean, it's really tough because there's both teams are just so incredibly inconsistent, but Washington feels like the better team. Like they should, they have, they're, they're the better, they're, they should be the better team, but for some reason they're just, they haven't been able to put it together in games three and four. I just, I still sort of believe in the better team should win the guy, you know, the team with the best player on the floor should also win in John Wall. And, you know, we could have the conversation between Paul, John Wall and Paul Millsap, but I really I'm a big John Wall fan and, you know, the point guard is such a more valuable position than really any other position on the floor. So I think Washington has the horses and they've, you know, they've got a good coach. I really like Scott Brooks. I think they should be the better team. I mean, I, I, in my head, I want to go wizards in six because they're the better team, but I'm going to go wizards in seven just because you know that Washington will lay an egg in one of these two games because they're so wildly inconsistent this season. Yeah, they are they are inconsistent. I think it's worth noting that for as much uh, crap as the Wizards fans take, I think almost almost as much as the Hawks fans do, that team is now thirty two and eleven at home this year when combined uh, between the regular season and the playoffs. So they've been very very good at home for whatever reason. I wouldn't I guess you wouldn't attribute that that to atmosphere necessarily, but uh, they are playing very well. It is also worth noting though that they had that six o'clock start time, so I can't imagine it's going to be super lively at, at the tip off. Maybe we'll see if, if that uh, affects anything, but. I've sort of been taking a straw poll offline today to see what people think about this series and a lot. I think the consensus has been Wizards in seven now, um, if only because uh, what you said, it's sort of a toss up. But I think, you know, having two games at home for Washington is probably a big X factor. And the fact that um, they haven't played well in Atlanta, which means that uh, it's tough to predict that they win in six. My, my prediction coming into the series was was uh, Wizards in six. Um, but I also, I also wasn't sure that Atlanta would be able to hold serve like they did at home. So I think I'd probably go Wizards in seven now. Six would not surprise me. Uh, if you want to pick the Hawks to win this series, I'm going to disagree with you, but it's not crazy at all. I mean, I've, what kind of percentage chance do you think the Hawks have to win this series? You know, 30, 40 percent, something like that? Yeah, they're somewhere into there. I was going to go to 25, 30, but it's it's right there. I mean, they really, obviously, I mean, obviously in a 2-2 series, you every you know, both teams really need game five. But if the Hawks were to win game five and then come come back to Atlanta for game six, I could see that crowd's going to be really good in Atlanta for game six if they're, you know, one win away from the next round. And, you know, if you... You get into like this game five is so big because if Atlanta wins and then they can eke out a game six at home, then all of a sudden you're playing Boston or Chicago in the next round. And like neither one of those teams are super scary at this point, the way Boston's been playing, you know, and you know, all of a sudden the Hawks go from maybe the worst team in the playoffs into a reasonable shot at the conference finals, which, you know, we were obviously getting ahead of ourselves there as well. But, you know, it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility at this point. Yeah, which is wild to consider because uh, I would have told you that they were the worst. If it was either Chicago or uh, 
or Atlanta for worst team in the playoffs, in my opinion, coming in. And, uh, you know, obviously the Hawks have played better than that. So that's that's good to see. And, uh, you know, game five is the big one. I think we can all agree on that. That game is going to be tonight as people listen to this on Wednesday. And um, if the Hawks lose game five, I, I have a hard time picturing the Hawks winning game six and then going in, going back to Washington and winning game seven. Wouldn't be impossible, but I would probably give them some somewhere in the neighborhood of a, you know, eight eight to 10% chance of doing that if they were to lose game five. So that's a huge jump. So they, they, need, to, they need to win game five. That's, that's the long and short of it. And uh, we'll see what happens. Um, Jeff, I appreciate you doing this, man. It's always a pleasure. Um, please plug anything that you would like to on this uh, on this fine day. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JG Siegel. You can find a lot of my writing at fansided.com, uh, new, the fansided new NBA vertical called The Step Back. You can find me from time to time on Peachtree Hoops, of course. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're looking forward to the rest of the playoffs, uh, you know, see if the, uh, if the Hawks can take this game five. For sure. It's going to be a lot of fun, man. And uh, thanks again. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast, do all those fun things, and we'll be back again after Game 5. So uh, until then, stay tuned.